Jesus, thank you for making a way for us. Thank you for making it well with our souls. We have a way of salvation through you. And I just pray right now as we open your word that we will see ourselves, that you'll reveal to us some things that need to be adjusted and that we will make those adjustments to align ourselves with your word today. And that you'll see in us hearts that are grateful. For your sacrifice. And I pray this in your powerful name, Lord Jesus, amen. Go ahead and take your uh, seat and your Bible. As we open up to the book of James, we're going to be in James chapter 3. But before we get going, um, I would like to uh, say two things. The first is that, you know, of all people, um, Of all the people in the world that, does not, that do not want to miss setting their clocks back, it's a pastor. Because it always happens on their watch, right? It always happens on Saturday night. And I completely spaced <laughs> last night that we had, thank God we're not in the springtime. And I would have been an hour late, but my alarm went off at 5.30 like it always does on Sunday morning, and um, it was... 4.30, I'm brushing my teeth going, wait a minute, it's 4.30. <laughs> and um, the Lord had a purpose in that, actually, because he laid some things on my heart that I want to share with you at the end of the sermon. So I'm going to kind of blast through some of what I'm going to say. You're going to think, man, he's going in a hurry, but um, I've reserved some time at the end because I want to speak into you about our responsibility as a church this coming week. Okay, you good with that? All right, so let's start with this um, as we move into this message today. I'm gonna read to you from 1 Kings chapter three. The Lord appeared to Solomon and said, what do you want? Ask and I will give it to you. Now, I'm, as I read that, I think to myself, man, what a, what a thing for God to say to a human being. And then I thought, well, what would I ask for? If God came to me and God came to you, just think about this. If God came to you and said, hey, Rob, what do you want? Just tell me what you want and I'll give it to you. I, I'm, I don't know what I would ask for. But Solomon, okay, now Solomon was the son of King David. David was the king of Israel, and now Solomon is the king of Israel. And this is what he says. O Lord my God, you have made me king instead of my father David. But I am like a little child who doesn't know his way around. And here I am in the midst of your own chosen people, a nation so great and numerous that they cannot even be counted. So here's my request. Give me an understanding heart. Now that's wisdom. So give me wisdom so that I can govern your people well and know the difference between right and wrong. For who by himself is able to govern this great people of yours? And I want you to notice, my friends, that the Lord was very pleased that Solomon had asked for wisdom. So God replied, because you have asked for wisdom and have not asked for a long life or wealth or the death of your enemies, which most of us would ask for. 
I will give you what you asked for, and I will give you a wise and understanding heart. So here's the question. Have you ever been, have you been like me and ever been in this place that Solomon was at where you're crying out to the Lord, Lord, I really need you to show up right now. You ever been there? I'm like a little kid. I'm like a little baby. Solomon says, I'm like a little child. You've put me in charge of all of these people of yours, and I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it. I really need you to help me. You ever been there? I'm there all the time. Just let you know. I, I don't know what I'm doing most of the time. And I'm like, I feel like a little kid. I'm like a little baby. And I really need you to show up. I need your strength. I need your grace. I need your help. And I need your wisdom. To know how to lead, especially in the times in which we're living today. I really need your wisdom, Lord. And so I want you to know that with the help of James today, in James chapter three, verses 13 through 18, we're going to do what James is doing, and that's examine wisdom. That's the title of the sermon, examining wisdom today. And James is laying out a series of tests for us in the book of James by which we can verify the genuineness of our faith in Jesus Christ. And wisdom is the next in line, the, text, the, the, the test that is next for us. We've been working through the foundational things, the, the, the things that start, that when we become a Christian, it all starts here. All the things that we're doing are foundational to a successful Christian life, the things that we've been working on that James is teaching us. We've worked through how the true Christian, the the genuine Christian relates to trials and temptations and that those trials are always coming into our lives and those trials are there for a purpose and we have to figure out what that is. We've talked about how the true Christian responds to the mirror of God's word, that when God's word is held up and it shows and reveals to us the things that need to be worked on, the true genuine Christian is the one who will go to work working on that. They'll be doers of the word and not just hearers only. That's how you know if a person's got true, genuine faith. We've dealt with the sins of partiality and prejudice in the church. We've learned how to put feet to our faith. And last time that we were together in the book of James, this is three weeks ago, we tamed our tongues, right? <laughs> right? How's it going? Are you working on taming your tongue? That's a yes or no question. It's polite to answer somebody when they ask you a question. So are you working on taming your tongue? Yes. Well, you can say no, be honest. Don't lie with the same tongue you're trying to tame, okay? <laughs> if you haven't been and you say no, well then step up, it's time, right? It's time to tame our tongues. It's time to get after it, it's time to work on it. That's what the whole thing of the book of James has been about, is how do we go back sometimes to the basics that we need to really be working on and that's where we are in chapter three is the whole discussion of how do we use our tongues for the glory of the Lord. And the, the first verse, if you remember going back a couple of weeks, the first verse of James three, he says this, dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church. Remember that? Not many of you should be clamoring for the teaching position in the church because, and here's the reason, those who teach are gonna be judged more strictly than everyone else. We learned a couple weeks ago that we're all broken people and that we have this beast in our mouths that cannot be tamed. 
And this beast, if, we don't, if we're not careful, will set things and people on fire. In fact, it says that this thing is set on fire with the fire of hell. How horrible is that to know that that's what we have in our mouths? So we talked about the fact that this is attached to this because what comes out of here is what actually comes out of here. And we worked on that. And so what James is emphasizing is be hesitant and very careful before launching into a teaching position because our tongues can't be trusted. And we've got to understand that that has to be under the control of the Holy Spirit in order for us to be the teachers that he wanted. Now, in verse 1 to 12, James emphasizes that a teacher communicates with his lips, and we know that that comes out of the heart. But verses 13 and 18, he's going to emphasize that a a teacher communicates with his life. And he calls that in these next verses wisdom. So be very careful being a teacher because if you do, not only does this have to say the right thing, but your life has to reflect the right thing, and that's called wisdom. And the latter is more important than the former to James as we work down through this. So look at verse 13 because this is where we are today in James chapter 3. He asked the question, who is wise and understanding among you? So he's, he's in this discussion about people being teachers in the church, and so he stops and says, hey, let's just do a little test here. Let's just do a little examination of the congregation and ask the question, is it a fair question to say, who among you is wise? If we're talking about some people getting up to speak and speak the truth of God's word, let's, let's figure out who among you is wise and can do that. Is that a fair question? That's a yes or no question. So when people ask you a question, it's rude to not answer them, right? And so is that a fair question? Yeah. yeah, it's a fair question. Thank you. Just keep that going, brother, and it'll just spread to the whole rest of the church, all right? Of course it's a fair question, and that's what he's asking. Who, who among you is wise and understanding? But what he's really asking is this. Who is truly wise, and how can we know? That's what he's really asking in these five verses. We get to do an examination. Now before we jump in, let me, let me say that the wisdom that we're going to examine does not mean what we often think it means. We often relate wisdom to knowledge and understanding and to your IQ, so how, like how smart are you, right? So that we can come to you because you're so full of knowledge that you can give us wise advice. That's not what we're talking, that's not the wisdom. That is part of wisdom, but that's not the wisdom dealt with here in this passage. The wisdom we're going to be dealing with is rooted in the application of the knowledge and understanding that you get of the truth, okay? And so I have this uh, working definition that we're going to use here that I think is important. Don't try to write this one down. I'm going to give you a simplified version of this, but it's this. Wisdom is the application of knowledge and understanding through divine power to the reshaping of one's life and the transformation of one's attitudes and behaviors resulting in righteousness. That's what we're dealing with here in this passage. To simplify it, just write this down somewhere. Wisdom is not what I know, it's how I live. So how many of you are wise? How can we know? We're gonna examine how you live. That's how we'll know. And that's what James is gonna teach us today as we walk down through this. 
Because how I live, according to the wisdom of God, is a barometer of my spiritual condition and the genuineness of my faith. So what's the test of who is wise among you? Let's answer that question with James in verse 13 again, where he says this. I'm reading now out of the New Living Translation because I love how they, they put it in here. If you were wise and understand God's ways, then prove it. I love that. You can actually prove your wisdom, your divine wisdom. You can actually prove that you have a right to speak the truths of God to the congregation. And here's how. It's by living an honorable life and doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. The way that we prove that we are wise is through our good behavior and our gentle deeds. That's the good works with humility. That We're going we're to talk through that and break that down. So the truly wise person is the one who is willing to change and is actively involved in changing and aligning their lives to the truth and its evidence through their behavior in how they act. You're going to see these kinds of truly wise people in the church. You're going to see them. They're going to be the ones that are making regular adjustments to their normal life patterns in order to align them to the truth of God's word. So when the God's word is held up and we see in the mirror of God's word what we need to do, the wise people, the truly wise people in the church are the ones who are going on making adjustments to their lives all the time because they realize they're broken and they see what's broken and they go to work working on it. That's what living an honorable life is all about. That's the truly wise person in the church. That's how we know who they are. But then there's the doing good works with humility piece. So the two things, the honor, living an honorable life and doing good works with humility. Now some of your Bibles will use the word meekness. You have that in there? That's a really good word um, Showing your good works in meekness. Now, the problem with the word meekness, at least for me, is that my whole life, when I hear meekness, I hear weakness. That somehow meek people are weak people, and it's just the opposite. In fact, in the Greek language, the word meekness is often used when, you, when taming a wild horse, when you're using the term that we took this wild horse, this power, and we brought it under control, you call that meekness. So in that horse, that wild horse that has been trained properly, he hasn't lost his strength or his spirit it's just now under control. And in this context, what we're talking about here is that the wise person is under control of his conduct, is under control of his attitudes, and under control of his demeanor. We don't lose our spirit, we don't lose our power, we don't lose who we are. We just bring it all under the control of the Holy Spirit of God. How many of you are wise? Is there any wise people among you? How do we know? People who are living their life in an honorable way, and people who are under control in meekness and gentleness, and they do their good deeds in that gentleness. Look at, Paul describes this in 2 Timothy chapter two. If you wanna go there with me, that'd be a good passage to look at with me. I'm gonna have it on the screen, but it's 2 Timothy chapter two. Now, I just will tell you that I got myself in trouble when I was in my early 30s. I was in a deacon's meeting. It was a real, a real, 
heavy meeting that we had. We had some things to really work on. And I really blew it with my mouth. I really, I was saying words that were truth, but I wasn't speaking the truth in love, and I had an attitude behind it, and it just fell apart, and I blew the whole meeting up. I mean, literally, with what I said, my attitude just messed the whole thing up. And I went to talk to a counselor of mine, um, a great name, name, man named Randy Patton, and Randy said this to me. He goes, here's the deal, Phil, because you have kind of a reactionary um, personality, so here's what you're going to do from now on. When you go into a meeting like this, you're going you're to open 2 Timothy chapter 2. You're going to put it on your lap, and you're going to hold your finger on verse 24. And when you feel like reacting, and you feel like jumping out there, these are the words that I want you to read. The Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach and not resentful. Now, he's describing what James is telling us the wise people are in the church. And those who oppose him, he must gently instruct. Why? I want to ask, I want to stop here in this passage because why would we instruct people who oppose us? What's our normal goal in that? Huh? To win them over, but to win our point most of the time, right? It's like, Okay, I'm right, you're wrong, you're opposing me, so here I come, brace yourself. That was my problem. That is my problem. It is my problem that I'm working on. Look at the goal. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So who is wise among you? It's the person who is gentle. It's the person who is doing good deeds with gentleness. It is the person who is under control and it is a person who is living honorably before the Lord. That's the test of who is wise among you and who should be teachers in the church. Now, Verse 14 starts with a big but. And I want you to look at it because it's going to contrast what we just talked about. And it says but, circle that, but if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. So there's two things here that are the opposite of what we just read in verse 13 and they are bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Okay, Pop quiz, you ready? Everybody ready? Love pop quizzes, don't you? Pop quiz, you've been hearing about this for, for years. If you've been sitting in church, you heard about it the last two weeks. So this is coming right out of the last two Sundays that Steve Attner brought before us. So where do things like bitter jealousy and selfish ambition come from? Good deal. You listened. They come out of the... Heart, out of the heart, the mouth speaks, okay? And what James is saying here is that sitting down in the hidden secret places of all of our hearts are two basic earthly motivations, and they're called jealousy and selfishness. And if you want to be a teacher in the church, and you have in your heart these two motivations for being a teacher, then you're a fool and you are unwise. You are not the wise people that we're looking for to teach in the church. 
Because jealousy and selfish ambition tend to drive a lot of people who want to speak. So what's in your heart? What's motivating you? Now let's look at the first one of bitter jealousy. Write this down. Bitter jealousy is trying to hold on to what you have. I'm going to explain that in just a second. But I read, I read an author who wrote this this week. There are twins of the soul that are evil. They may sound alike and look alike, but are very different. One's name is envy, and the other's name is jealousy. And I want to talk about the difference in those two as it relates to this passage. See, envy, and let me illustrate it this way. Envy is mourning the fact and even being angry of the fact that I, with empty hands don't have what you with full hands have. You get that? That's what envy is. So envy is me with empty hands mourning the fact that I don't have what you have in your hands and I really want it. In fact, it might even come out as anger and bitterness because I want what I don't have because you have it. That's envy. Jealousy is the other way. Jealousy is trying to hang on to all that I have so that you can't take what I have. I'm jealous of what I have. That's what we're talking about here with bitter jealousy. Envy begins with nothing and watch when it doesn't have. This jealousy begins with much and fights to keep it. Here's an illustration of that. A jealous husband or a jealous wife wants to keep their relationship and wants to keep their mate. A jealous worker fears losing their job. A jealous preacher fears losing his congregation to a better preacher. Really? Does that really happen? What do you think? Yes, it does. Happens all the time. The preacher has much, but he fears losing it. Now, let me just tell you that this is the type of person that is full of competition and rivalry. A person who is looking at everything with that approach, that hanging on to everything I have and everyone's a, a threat to what I have and taking what I have is not the kind of person that is, that is showing godly wisdom in their lives. This is the person who lives in a me kind of world. Didn't Steve Etner do such a great job with us, helping us with that balance between putting King Jesus on the throne or are we putting King me on the throne? This kind of person with bitter jealousy is all about putting King me on the throne and their whole life is about them. Everyone exists to serve me. Everyone exists to agree with me. And to get on my train because I'm the one who has everything that you all need. That's that, this, this type of person. They live in a self-formed, self-focused world. And they become resentful and bitter against anyone who threatens to invade their territory or might threaten their accomplishments or threaten their reputation. Anyone who differs with this kind of person is the enemy. And they are just wrong. And that's what he's talking about, the, pure, the person who is full of bitter jealousy, trying to hold on to what you have. Now, there's the other side of this person, and that's selfish ambition. And these two things go together, by the way. 
But selfish ambition is trying to push yourself to the top. So you have this person who's got King Me on the throne. This person is saying, I have all this stuff and I'm gonna do everything I can to hang on to it and you better, you're, you better not come over here and try and get it because everything in my world is about me and I want to be the greatest of all time and I'm gonna push myself up in selfish ambition in front of, and ahead of everybody else. This is the person who wants to be seen all the time because it makes them feel important and it makes them feel special. This is a person who's always jockeying for the limelight. Do you know those kinds of people? Don't answer the question. We all know those kinds of people. And we may have been those kinds of people in the past. We might be that kind of person now. But it's been said of those kinds of people, the person who really wants the limelight Better never be given the limelight. (laughs) This is the bullhorn guy. I want everybody to hear what I have to say because I'm so important and I'm so wise. It's not wisdom. In fact, this person who thinks they've got something to say doesn't understand that they got nothing to say. Do you understand, my friends, that no matter what you think of yourself and how full of knowledge and understanding and enlightenment you are, you have absolutely nothing to say that would make any eternal difference in anybody's life except for the power of the Holy Spirit working in your words and infusing your words and helping the person who hears it to understand it in order to make any change of value in their life at all. Do you understand that? You have nothing to say without the power of the Holy Spirit. Anything I say, I'm making a huge mistake and wasting everybody's time. If I get up here and I'm not speaking to the power of the Holy Spirit of God, it's just blah, 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 blah. The the, the Spirit has to empower my words in order for there to be lasting eternal change in your heart. Otherwise, we're gonna get up and walk out of here and just be like we always have been. And that's what James is saying here. So he says, stop running around boasting about your godly wisdom if your life is marked by pride, arrogance, self-protection, and self-absorption. This is not the way of God, and this is not the way of God's people. Look at verse 15. Jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and what's the word? Come on, say it out loud. What is it? Demonic? That's scary. James has been describing man in the raw in his earthly state in verses 14 and 15. Not the new creations that Christ makes of those who believe in him. This kind of stuff is worldly and fleshly and demonic wisdom. Which are the enemies of our soul, by the way. The world, the flesh, and the devil are the enemies of our soul. And this kind of wisdom leads us into self-sufficiency and smugness. It leads us into self-confidence that leads us into immorality and rationalization, which leads us down the road of total abandonment of our natural impulses and desires. Verse 16 says, for wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. Wow. Are you looking around today? I don't mean in here, I mean out there. Are you looking around today? 
Are you worried? Good, because I am. So I need you not to be. (laughs) My natural slant is I'm worried about what I see out there. Because all I see lately is anger and bitterness and hatred and abuse and anarchy and lawsuits and divorce and people who can't get along with each other. And what James is telling us is this is all the legacy of earthly wisdom. Wherever these things exist, there will be disorder and chaos and evil of every kind. Confusion, chaos, destruction, devastation, division, no love, no intimacy, no humility, no sharing, no respect, no fellowship, no harmony, and no peace is found in a world where people are jealous and full of selfish ambition. But this is the way of the world. It just keeps getting worse and worse. Right? It's not getting better and better, but the The crazy thing is the Bible tells us it's gonna get worse and worse. I just wish it was happening in another generation, right? I don't don't wanna deal with all that, but I know that it's getting worse and worse right now, and so there's a reality that we have to understand, that all of what we see out there is of the world and has no place in the church. Jealousy and selfish ambition has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. It's fleshly, and it's of the devil, It's what the devil is using. I have to remind myself and therefore remind you that it can't go any other way out there in the world because we have a whole civilization of people who are locked up in human wisdom. And so the the devastating effects of that are just natural to the human condition. And they don't have the answers But hear me, and hear me loudly, we do. We have the answer to their problem. We've experienced it. All is well in our souls because we've experienced the love of Jesus Christ. And we have the answer to all the problems out in the world. His name is Jesus. What are you doing about it? Who are you telling the good news to? That they don't have to be locked up with all of the disorder and every kind of evil if they would just give their hearts to Jesus. But that the other is true, that without Jesus, they can't help but be involved in all the chaos. Are you mad at things that are going on out there? Are you mad at some people right now out in our world? Man, come on, you guys. Are you? I am, I'm yelling at the TV. What are you talking about? I mean, I'm yelling at the TV right now. And what this is saying to us is, they can't help it. They're just doing what comes natural to them. The only way they're gonna be able to change, truly change, is if they find Jesus. And we have to tell them. Verse 17 says, the wisdom from above is first of all pure. He says first of all because all these things he's gonna list are in order of importance, but notice the first of all before the first first of all is that wisdom is from above. We are not by nature wise. 
But as we grow into Christ's skin, we should be growing in his wisdom, right? And that will be marked by purity, and he's not talking about moral purity as much as he's talking about the motive of our purity. And it's peace-loving. We are supposed to be the kind of people that are bringing healing words to the table instead of bringing the storm into the relationship. We're supposed to be gentle at all times and willing to yield to others and be full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. Good deeds is helping someone in need, right? Mercy is not giving someone what they deserve. So this is talking about the attitude, which is mercy, of helping someone, which is the good deeds, out of a bad situation. And in this case, it's more important to understand that maybe that person got in that situation because of themselves, because of bad decisions that they make. And so what kind of people help people like that? Christians do. Full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. Someone once wrote, we can never say that we have truly felt mercy towards someone until we have somehow tried to help them. It goes back to verse 16 of chapter two where you find out that your brother, what kind of Christian finds out that his brother has a need and then says, okay, goodbye, thank you, God bless you, be warmed and filled and it does nothing about it. That's mercy without deeds. And what James is saying is the test of supernatural wisdom is not what you say, but it is what you do. And it's supposed to show no favoritism and is always sincere, without hypocrisy, without pretense. There's no fakers in the church of Jesus Christ among the wise. There's no phonies. There's no posers in all of that. And these things taken together will, verse 18, plant seeds of peace within the body and reap a harvest of righteousness. I can't think of a better way to end a, a sermon like this than to just read a prayer and start with a prayer similar to the prayer of Solomon that we started with, or or end with the prayer like one we started with. And this prayer comes from Francis of Assisi. And I'm gonna pray it out loud. I want you to just pray it in your heart with me. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, let me sow pardon. Where there is doubt, let me sow faith. Where there is despair, let me sow hope. Where there is darkness, let me sow light. And where there is sadness, let me sow joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying, dying to self, that we are born to eternal life. Oh, how I want to be a man of wisdom, a man that could be a tool in God's hand to bring truth to bear in the church of Jesus Christ. I know you want the same. Now I am down to, I have two minutes left and I have, I need 10. So can you be patient with me and hang on for a few more minutes? So I feel it's very important to speak and make a statement about this coming week. We've all been told that we need to go be influencers in our sphere of influence about 
the upcoming election, and you are my sphere of influence. And so um, the Lord has laid this statement. I actually didn't know what else to call it, so I call it a 2020 voting statement. And, um, but I want to start with this. Um, President Reagan said these words actually in 1964. He spoke, <clears throat> freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed down to them to do the same, or one day we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in the United States where men were free. Honestly, I am grieving in my heart what has become of the America of my youth. We are what seems to be hopelessly divided like never before. Which, by the way, is exactly where Satan wants us. Scripture is clear that a house divided against itself cannot stand. Um, the time for all Christians to stand against the evil at work in our nation, to stand against the evil at work in our world is now. It has come. It is upon us. It's time for the church of Jesus Christ to say loudly, enough is enough. Satan isn't just coming for the unity and freedoms of our nation. His sights are so much bigger. He's coming for and has as his end goal the destruction of the truth of God's word, the destruction of the family, the destruction of the church, and the destruction of Christ and his kingdom being fulfilled here on earth. That's his end game, and he's got all these other games going on, but they're all part of this great big scheme that he has to destroy Christ and his kingdom. It's important that you understand that. I believe that we are literally on the edge of national and spiritual destruction. Now, I'm not trying to be chicken little and calling that the sky is falling, but my friends, the sky is falling. And we are on the precipice of something horrible happening to the foundation, the very foundation of what we have been established as a nation. I want you to listen to me carefully, carefully, please. We can agree to disagree on a lot of things. We can. It's okay to have free and open discussion about certain things. We can agree and disagree on like how we take care of the planet. Paper or plastic straws, you you choose. We can agree to disagree about turtles and dune mice and spotted owls. 
We can agree to disagree about health care and other social programs, about border control and taxation and regulation and all kinds of things like that. There's a lot of things out there in our world that we can agree to disagree on. But there are some issues that are totally non-negotiable. It's not okay to agree to disagree on these issues. Things like the sanctity of human life and the sanctity of marriage and the sanctity of the family unit and the preservation of religious liberty and freedom to worship. These things, I'm gonna call them biblical non-negotiables. These aren't up for debate. God has something to say about them, and he's serious about them. And this is truth. And so it matters. Those things matter in our world. We are supposed to speak out in a way that upholds and protects these non-negotiable values that we hold so dear. I can't tell you how I am voting And I'm not gonna tell you who you should vote for. But I must remind you, it's my duty as your pastor. This is my sphere of influence. And before God, I have to remind you that who you vote for will translate into what you are voting for. It's not about personality, my friends. It's not even about character that we are hearing so much about. We're all broken people, and we got some really broken people running for president. But I've got to remind all of us that who you vote for will translate into what you vote for. It's always been that way, but the stakes are higher this cycle than they've ever been in my lifetime. And the question that you must ask of your candidate are these. Are you okay? Okay, (laughs) here we go. Are you pro-life or are you pro-abortion? And pro-abortion, I'm not asking you. These are the questions you need to be asking the person you're thinking about voting for. And if you're pro-life, awesome. If you're pro-death, I mean pro-abortion, you're pro-death. 61 million babies have died since the passing of Roe versus Wade because of selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. It's not okay. And it's all right for us to be angry about that. It's murder. It's all right for us to stand up in whatever platforms we have available to us and say no. We are not going to be okay with you continuing to murder children. 
We're supposed to be a civilized nation, not a selfish nation. This is what we're supposed to be about. I think it's okay to overturn Roe versus Wade. I think biblically we should. Is it all right for us to appoint judges that might lean towards that? Absolutely. Why would we appoint judges that would lean otherwise? I don't know. I mean, are we people or are we animals? I'm sorry, Carl, I'm totally off script. I gave this to the deacons and elders last night to say, is this okay for me? (laughs) I just totally went off the rail on that part there, sorry. So (laughs) here's the next question you need to ask your candidate. Do you support or oppose the sanctity and biblical definition of marriage? Do you support that it is a sacred covenant between a natural born man? I can't believe I have to say that. When I first wrote that, I wrote, do you believe in the sacred covenant between a man and a woman for life? And I went, no, I have to go further and ask them, do you believe between a natural born man and a natural born woman for life? That's what the Bible talks about is is marriage. Anything else is sexual immorality. You need to ask your candidate, are you going to protect and support the church's right to assemble or will you look for every opportunity to marginalize and shut us down? You need to ask them, will you protect, support, and demand religious liberty? My friends, listen to me. We are a nation on the brink of fundamental downward spiraling change. It's never been more important for God's people, the church of Jesus Christ, to have its voice heard, and that voice is enough, is enough. That's the message that we've got to send all office holders and politicians that are running for positions of leadership, and we must let them know that we are not okay with the downward spiral that we find ourselves in in our nation. One pastor said this, a nation always gets the kind of politicians it deserves. If the time ever comes when all those who call on the name of the Lord ever have to suffer under a totalitarian state which would deny them the right to worship God according to the light of their conscience, it will be because for years they thought it made no difference what kind of people represented them and because they abandoned the spiritual in the realm of the temporal. That was written 60 years ago. And man, it's like it was written yesterday. Our responsibility is to be a proactive light in this present darkness, and fortunately, we still have the ability and the power to vote for or against what we hold dear and true, the things that God holds dear and true. So I want to say to all of you hearing me, let's get after it and let our voices be heard for righteousness' sake. We are the mighty 
powerful church of Jesus Christ. And though all hell breaks out on this earth or breaks out against us and the church, we do not despair because Christ is risen and has conquered sin, death, and the devil, and therefore we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loves us and gave himself for us. But we have a role to play in the battle for the heart and soul of this nation and its influence not only in the lives of our families and the church, but the influence that we have in the world. And we need to seriously consider that reality. Who you vote for is directly connected to what you are voting for. Let's get out there and let our voice be heard. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sins, and heal their land. Would you stand with me and let me pray us out of here today. So Father, we uh, thank you for your son Jesus Christ, for the light that you put inside of us and the power that we have through your Holy Spirit. I pray that that power would rise up right now and make a difference in our nation that claims to be one nation under God. So help us. And I don't know what else to pray, Lord. I really don't. I could pray for a lot of things and ask you for a lot of things. So I'm just gonna default to, Lord Jesus, what you told your disciples to pray. When they said, we don't know how to pray, this is what you said to them. So I'm gonna pray it. Our Father, who are in, are in heaven, holy is your name. And let your kingdom be done on this earth as it is in heaven. And we pray this prayer in the powerful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you as you go. Let's go be the light that God's called us to be. Thank you for your patience. You're dismissed.